Hello and welcome to another extra special, extra wonderful Final Fantasy X episode of Normandy FM. We are here this week to talk about Bavel, the big event, the big wedding, and everything. Of course, I'm one of your co-hosts, Eric Van Allen, joined by Kenneth Shepard. Ken, how you doing? I'm good. I'm ready to crash this wedding. That's all we show up for, right? Is, you know, Titus has finally realized his feelings, realized he cares about things, and and now he's got to go stop a wedding because that's what we do (laughs) in the land of Spira. And uh, crashing this wedding with us is the one, the only Jenny Wyndham. How you doing? I'm so good. I'm ready to crash this podcast. <laughs> Woo! Is we are so happy to have you on to bring you on. Uh, this was uh, when we put the call out for for Final Fantasy X folks who were interested in this stuff. Uh, you were definitely one of the people that we saw uh, speak up, and we we're like, "Yeah, we gotta get Jenny on." So <laughs> happy it to was, have you here. It was so exciting. This is one of my favorite Final Fantasies. Maybe, maybe the favorite. It kind Intellectual. of intellectual. Yeah, <laughs> wisdom. <laughs> yeah, just change out that middle letter in my last name. It's actually Miss Wisdom. Uh, no, I really, I, I love this game so much. So as soon as I saw that tweet go out, I was like, I, whatever I need to do, I, I want to talk about this game. So I'm ready. Jenny, for the folks at home, I got three questions for you. We're going to do the first two first. Number one, tell us a little bit about yourself. And number two, tell us about how you got into Final Fantasy and or Final Fantasy X. Yeah. Okay. So first one's first. Uh, my name is Jenny Wyndham. I am. I do a lot of things in the indie industry, as most folks in the indie game industry do. Uh, my origin story was mostly in YouTube content and streaming, but I became a community manager, community developer, and I've worked on games like Garden Story, which is this adorable game that released earlier this summer. Um, and currently, I am a the lead producer for a company called Soft Not Weak. We're creating a game called Spirit Swap, lo-fi beats to match 3-2. And I do advising for Kowloon Nights, which is a indie game fund. And I also do influencer management for a group called Kepler Interactive. So lots of lots of different things. Um, I like to keep busy. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I, I also, I'm like, what is the second question? Uh, how did Fantasy. I get into Final Fantasy? Um, you know, I originally played Final Fantasy VII on the PC. There was a PC version okay. of that game. Um, my brother and I, we had this like, honk and huge windows computer that you know our dad got for for school but we got the discs for final fantasy 7 and we had this kitchen timer that my mom would set for like 30 minutes each because she read somewhere that, that was like a good amount of video game for a child to play and so after we did our homework we each got 30 minutes of final fantasy and we would have to we switched because we were like okay we got to maximize our progress because mm. otherwise we'll never finish right. this game right and after final fantasy 7 i was like I need more. I'm hooked. And so I played eight, loved eight. I think eight and 10 are my two favorites. They kind of go in between. Because mm. um, eight is just a wild ride. If you ever do a podcast on eight, please call me as well. <laughs> I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility around these parts. Oh my gosh. I have so many feelings about eight and they're amazing. Um, I skipped nine because... I was in middle school by that time, and mm-hmm. apparently nine wasn't 
like emo enough for me <laughs> after seven and eight i was like where's the darkness Fair <laughs> enough. it wasn't it was a little like it was a little like proper it was a little more like the classical final fantasy which i get that some people like they want their their traditional fantasy but it didn't have that edginess to it you know you didn't you can picture the protagonist writing in their journal really sad with like song lyrics in the margins right like give me those like swoopy bangs in the front and you know (laughs) i've played nine cents and i i have i love it as well but um 10 honestly was the first playstation 2 game that i had Mm -hmm. uh and it actually released right before it came out in july and it was right before my birthday and so i spent basically my whole birthday playing 10 and just falling in love with this game that combined like a lot of the emotion that I loved from seven and eight, but with this really vibrant world that I had Mm. never seen before in a game. So yeah. And then again, I've just been into final fantasy since. So, well, we do have one last question. This is the important one. This is for all the marbles right here. How do you pronounce the name of the protagonist of final fantasy 10? (laughs) I'm going to have to say it is one and only Titus. Yes. We have not had a Titus in a while. I was on such a streak. I'm sorry. Okay. So to be fair, when I was, when I first started playing the game, I totally thought it was Titus because I think other folks have talked about this where it's like, oh, the water, the tide, Mm -hmm. blitzball player. But then as we played and I just read it more, um, and with Korean as well as Japanese, I realized that T is the sound mm-hmm. that would be most often referenced. And then as the, you know, the little Final Fantasy sort of nerd that I was, I was looking up like the origin of the names and Titus relates to like sun, I guess, in mm. in Japanese. And I do not speak Japanese, so I'm sorry to anyone <laughs> who actually does know the definitions. Um, but Titus was like related to the sun and Yuna was related to the moon. And so... To me, ever since I looked that up, it's been Titus. Mm. Tide is a is a pod that you put in laundry. So <laughs> I'm not you have gonna... shown up with more research than Ken or I have done on the oh! on the matter. So. Again, I'm I'm such a nerd for this game. I love it. <laughs> this is perfect. This is balancing it out. Sadly, it gives Ken more ammo against me, but that was okay. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that coming into this. So <laughs> I mean, eventually I, you would have to give in because I'm right. I mean. No, I just give in because we don't need an entire season's worth of podcasting of the two of us. Fi- I mean, that is actually the nature of our podcast. It's just the two of us fighting for an entire season. <laughs> but <laughs> on some things, we do need to uh, concede and work together on. Uh, and one of those things is playing Final Fantasy X, which we are getting into now because we are in the Bavel section, a freaking banger of a section in Final Fantasy X, let me tell you. Uh after I finished this, I was on Blood God last week, and we had the section where we come on and we talk about what we've been playing and all that. And I just had to say, like, this is, I've played through the section that we were playing for Norm DFM, and oh my God, it, like, it just reminded me of all the reasons why I love this game. Mm. It is mm-hmm. maybe one of my favorite sections of this game we've played so far. But Bavel is really just this incredible section that I feel combines everything that's really good about Final Fantasy X. It's incredible boss fights. It's beautiful cutscenes. It's incredible storytelling. Great musical moments. I mean, Ken, just before we even get into the nitty gritty of it, like, what did you think of the Bavel section? It's kind of like a 
quick like montage of some of the most iconic moments at this game really like mm-hmm. i've always like even you know when i've had many years between me and the last time i played this game the the wedding scene like not even just the wedding scene like yuna's uh we'll call it dramatic exit from the wedding scene it's like some like it's very much like a scene that like <laughs> plays and repeat in my head all these mm-hmm. years later um and we're gonna have like this, this section where we're gonna like basically like grind like sonic characters down a railing to go save her and mm-hmm. after and before that we're gonna go fight this like really like one of the like one of the, it was actually a very tough boss fight but also one i think like really gets all the systems like all the systems of final fantasy 10 really click with it as well and mm-hmm. that, i think that's what mm-hmm. makes it as iconic as it is um and it's also just going to be, like, where a lot of the uh, really meaningful themes of this game are starting to, like, really come to a head because we're basically going to get a lot of the truth of, you know, there's still a lot of twists to come, but, like, a lot of the truths of this world are going to be basically be, like, laid bare for us. And we're going to get to watch all our all our little friends uh, deal with that and going to, like, really uh, get into some, like, really, like, introspective, like, meditative stuff that makes, like, even, you know, there's a lot of really big emotional scenes here but it's also like a lot of quiet moments of this game having to like really sit with what it's shown um yeah just well like a really like a, a kind of like a greatest hits section of this game mm-hmm. J- jenny why was this the section that you wanted to come on for <laughs> most epic rope like it has everything it really has mm-hmm. everything it's got drama it's got romance you've got these these plots that are being revealed I think I mean you put it perfectly it, it encompasses everything that I love about the game but also as a middle schooler who played this it was like the opportunity to see just and I don't want to I don't want to like talk too far ahead and spoil mm. <laughs> this if this is bad but um like just seeing some of the relationships and like the relationship of the game mm-hmm. really come mm-hmm. to fruition yep. uh, as a middle schooler like in, in my fangirl heart, I was like, this is what I want from my first kiss. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even as an adult, looking back, just when we get to talking about that scene in, in the woods and um, everything that sort of culminates to, that just was, like, iconic for me. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely iconic. Um, and, yeah, like you said, some of the themes that are revealed in this portion of the game, I think, are, are just so crucial to as a... a player who's hasn't played this game in a while revisiting a lot of these themes it was just really exciting to see like how how much they like really went for it mm-hmm. in this game mm-hmm. yeah. and um like so much more explicitly because final fantasy deals with especially like religion and faith and sort of organized like structures mm-hmm. and societies mm-hmm. a lot but this is the one game that like does not really pull any punches in right. its opinions and what it wants to say specifically about um, like religion. So mm-hmm. it's really, really good stuff. Hell yeah. yeah. It's kind of religion fearless on that talk. front. Like, yeah. Like, I, like I'm even still like, you know, knowing coming back like that's like, you know, part of the things that this game is like, man, it like really knew what it wanted to say and had no qualms about how anybody felt about it. Mm-hmm. Finally, we're going to get into some religion talk. You know, we just haven't really done a lot of that on the podcast. It's been weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we have we have so much to dive into. So let's start with, uh, we'll go to Bavel. And by I mean go to Bavel, we've got to get our way to Bavel. we got to fly this airship there. Um, we do have a little note. Uh, so we're picking up where we picked up last time, which was... They have located Yuna on the magical sphere locator thing that they have in the airship. 
and uh, see that she is in Bevel. She is wearing a wedding dress and she's next to Seymour. And obviously the question then comes, how is Seymour still alive? What? How? Uh, Oren speaks up and says that Seymour is dead, but he's unsent and his attachment to the world is keeping him in it. So Yuna obviously must be trying to send him and I know I've made a joke on here last time about Yuna bringing her staff to the wedding and trying to send him during the vows. That wasn't far off from reality. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a, a bit of a Hail Mary, but we respect it. <laughs> um, but Titus decides that, okay, we got to go back, Yuna up. We got to get her out of there. She's obviously in danger. I mean, this is, as we will soon see, uh, a walk down the aisle that comes with an armed escort. So <laughs> we've, we've got to help Yuna out. But as we're getting there, uh, we're being both attacked from within by stowaways from home. And we run into what is the larger danger here. Uh, Evray, giant freaking dragon <laughs> shows mm. up. <laughs> um, so as we go through all these random battles and stuff, they definitely build up the idea that we're going to take on something really big when we get out onto the deck of the airship and we're, we're running past Isaru and, and other characters who are kind of holding off uh, different areas. And they're like, go on ahead. We'll lock this area down and all that. Uh, good little reminder of all these side characters, especially as they're about to, at least some of them are about to start playing a more prominent role in what's happening. Uh, we get to the deck of the ship and every, the great sacred beast that protects Bavel, AKA a giant dragon shows up and we get to have just, this is the coolest boss fight. It, it was not a difficult one this time around. I, I remember it being more difficult when I was younger, but I think that's purely because I, I didn't know the strategies that I know now, which is going to be mm. a recurring theme for this entire section of when you know the strategies, you can't actually like get your way through these boss fights, but it's all about, I feel rewarding players who are making use of strategies rather than just, you know, hitting something until mm. it dies. Uh, and this, the every Altana fight, not, not Altana, Altana is later. Um, every is a really cool fight because we talked last week about not having Yuna around, not having this character who has been, uh, not only your source for summoning, but your source for healing, your source for cleansing, your source for getting rid of a lot of status effects, and here the game really pushes you, I think, to pay attention because every can apply poison mist and do it to all of your party and do a lot of damage in the process. So if you've been paying attention and you know that you've got a ton of all bed potions in your inventory that Riku can use, you can basically nullify that attack and be good. But if you aren't paying attention, you're just slowly withering away from all these attacks and you're probably going to die pretty fast. And it it's also just the coolest boss fight in terms of staging, like fighting on the deck of the airship and commanding Sid to like pull, pull forward, pull back, mm. uh, fight at distance, fight close up, uh, and the way that every will kind of swoop in or attack from range and all that. It's, this is just the coolest thing. Mm. I like, like Ken, how'd you fare with this boss battle? It was tough for me, but I also think I'm starting to gather that I might be under level and maybe actually need to do some grinding. Cause I have not mm. done that yet in this playthrough and that's probably a problem so i think i'm gonna spend some time in the calm lands next episode uh doing that but i did like like i said it's like really using a lot of the, the systems of this game because like it's the most you ever really have to or this uh, this far 
this is the most we've ever had to pay attention to like the turns that are coming and mm-hmm. how you can strategize around them like through um, having like you know having your entire party hasted but also like maybe using one of Jesus's delay attacks to like push back one of Ebra's turns so it will line up where Sid can move away before Ebra can actually hit you because if you don't pay attention to those things like you can command Sid to move all you want but if it doesn't get to his turn then you're still going to be in a line of fire and so mm-hmm. it's just a lot of like moving parts that you really have to be paying attention to and a lot of synergy that you have to have kind of constantly because this is because you're just switching between like close fight and distance fight you kind of have to have just about everybody ready to switch in a moment's notice because like waka and lulu are you know they're the ranged players but you can't they're, they're not necessarily as effective when you're up close but if you have moved away like titus and even riku and Oren can't really do much at all but that is your mm-hmm. chance to kind of like recover and uh, be able to head back into the fight, uh, you know, more ready and having avoided all, like, the, like you know, the, he can wipe out your team, like, immediately. Like, in, like, one turn, right. everything can be kind of completely fucked. So it's all about timing and it's all about really understanding how you can navigate these turns in a way that um, is most effective and it's going to keep your party safe. Because, like, it's just, man, like, it, it is, like, one of those things where, like, I'm, like... A seemingly simple battle system has, like, a lot of moving parts that make it way more complex. And, like, this is one of the fights where I feel like they best utilize it and really, like, test your understanding of its systems. Yeah, I I love this battle. And going back to sort of what we were just saying earlier, where this section of the game is just really sort of the epitome and, like, of, of all of the things that I think are really wonderful about Final Fantasy X, mm-hmm. it's, like, up until pretty much this point, I, I, at least I felt like as a player, you were getting those battles that were like, here's the winged enemy, here's the armored enemy, and here's the like fast one. And mm-hmm. you knew, like, it was really straightforward, really simple. Um, and what's really exciting is getting to these battles where you do have to strategize. It's right. less about brute force mm-hmm. and more about mm-hmm. how you really understand what the enemy's doing and what your party does. And I think more than so many other Final Fantasy games, like, uh, you know, Going back to this game after playing, especially like sort of the more live action mm. Final Fantasies has been mm-hmm. so much fun. And I find myself really wanting more of like, I want more sphere grid. Right. <laughs> I want more of this like this this system where we can really puzzle through the battles almost mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than just mm-hmm. punch our way through. Right. Yeah. Going into this, especially all the other RPGs I'm playing right now, um, like SMT and Ruined King and stuff like that, they they all have their kind of own take on turn base. But there's something about Final Fantasy X and the way it it makes everything very simple at the outset. Like you can just look over at the right hand side and see the turn order, and you've got an idea of what's coming up. But the way it begins to teach you how to manipulate that and use all the other systems around it to, like Ken was saying use a delay attack to get away from something or there's a character, uh, a boss fight coming up that will do very different things depending on current status of your party, current status of the enemy party, uh, depending on like being able to slide a character into the right slot where you can take advantage of sort of the if then statements of the boss. And it feels very rewarding when you start to figure this stuff out. And I think this is really where, Final Fantasy X turns that on, and it goes from having these bosses that are also great bosses. I, I We've not really had too many bad bosses in this game so far, aside from mm-hmm. the underwater jellyfish that trapped uh, Yuna <laughs> in the moon flow. But uh, 
everything else has been really interesting, really cinematic in some cases, like the Seymour fight in Makalania, but it, it's going to start ratcheting up the difficulty and the complexity of the battles because you're mm. getting further into the sphere grid system as well. You're getting more tools. It's more expected now that the player is going to have more tools to work with. And so there's a larger lexicon of verbs that you're working with in every battle. Like you're not just mm. working with attack and mm. elemental magic and heal, but you're working with ideas like poison and uh, status effects like stone, zombie, uh, things like, uh, oh shoot, the, the reflect that we're going to be talking about later that saved my butt, uh, at the <laughs> end of the Seymour fight in this section, uh, all this stuff starts to really play in, in interesting ways and also like challenge you to observe and draw conclusions about reactions from enemies. So, uh, yeah, I dig this section a lot, but when we finally bring down Evray, we finally take out the big dragon. Uh, we're here. We're we're here to. God, this might be my favorite CG in the whole game. <laughs> where Seymour uh, and Yuna are walking down the aisle. Uh, there's a full armed guard with them because you know it's a, it's it's a, a normal sh- wedding, shotgun wedding, machina wedding. <laughs> is this is where we're going. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the ceremony is filled with pyreflies and all that. Uh, everybody's getting ready to have a ceremony. And then all of a sudden, you know, they realize that the airship is diving in. Uh, Seymour pulls Yuna away and the soldiers start firing. And the airship shoots out these giant hooks with ropes in them. And everybody grinds down the rails yeah. to land on Bevel. And it is the coolest coolest thing in the world <laughs> this blew my young mind the first mm. time i saw it <laughs> I don't, jenny how did you feel about this this scene this this grinding in this grand entrance oh my gosh you just feel so badass like mm. the whole thing like because especially just you've you're already like adrenaline pumping from the every battle you know what's coming up next like i think just there's other sections of the game where I feel like the pacing can get a little bit wonky where it goes between battle to cutscene to like conversation but this does not do that at all like I feel like this all flows so seamlessly and really intensely um like that the t- as soon as you land and you start like you see the stairs and sort of each of the battle sequences you can see the stairs that you're aiming up for and like it just builds so mm. wonderfully Um, I remember this part really kicking my butt when I was a kid, though. Like, I remember Mm -hmm. getting stuck here quite a bit when you're fighting through the soldiers and, like, the, just, like, the machina, the armored, like, I don't remember what they're called. There's, like, that big robot that's Is the one that kicks you? Yes. I I almost got wiped by it because it was, (laughs) like, it it kicked out both my party members. There's only one person left. (laughs) And I remember as a kid just struggling through, and I actually, since I remembered struggling so hard i did do a lot of grinding (laughs) Mm. and so it was much also it felt better just overall because i was prepared for that moment um but yeah again seeing seeing titus just like flipping over the rails like sliding Mm. down like it's just nothing to it just you feel so cool you feel like a part of a team like i think this is Mm -hmm. one of the moments Mm -hmm. where you see all of the guardians really working together um to stop and like work for Yuna and save Yuna. And I think that's not something we've seen in this 
form at mm-hmm. least until now. Yeah, we were talking about the last episode that like that since Yuna was no longer there, they didn't have this uh, like center that normally like pushed mm-hmm. them in a certain direction. So like to see the group kind of have to work without their quote unquote leader to like take them in a certain direction and see them kind of just, like sort out all their shit together because Waka had to get through all his shit about the Albed and <laughs> Riku and you know everyone just kind of like finally like be like completely like focused in on the same page without having somebody like point them in that direction. Uh, you know, it kind of culminates in this scene, um, which I honestly have like a really hard time like separating from like Sonic the Hedgehog because that's that that's how fucking Sonic <laughs> and his friends grind and like this this particular point in my life where I was like playing Final Fantasy X is also like the point in my life where I was really into Sonic the Hedgehog so like just like it's it's something inseparable to me but um the the thing about like, y'all were saying about like it was kind of like it kicked all ass like I was kind of terrified because there's not a save point for a minute mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. the, it's like the latest one is before Everaid so like I was like oh fuck if I lose it here then I have to go fight that dragon again um luckily I didn't but I did get pretty close because like I I kind of went in expecting some of the same rules about Machina to be in place because like Riku's yeah. steel doesn't yeah. work on the good yeah. Machina and I was like oh well there went my like really easy strategy of like one hitting these things um but I th- there were a couple times because like both the Machina and like the uh the soldiers here, they hit hard, like, and they hit, like, they, they have a lot of, like, team-wide attacks as well that do mm-hmm. a lot of damage, and yep. so it is very, like, I had a lot of close calls here. It gets a little bit easier in this section, I think, later on when you're fighting these same enemies, but you have Yuna, because mm-hmm. uh, Nullfire takes care of the flamethrower attack, and uh, most of the section, honestly, I was relying on things like Waka being able to apply Dark to mm-hmm. the kickpot, uh, mm-hmm. but th- more than the kickbot, it was that artillery one in the back that would just randomly yep. shoot and do like 1700 damage to my whole team, which would kill a lot of my characters just outright. And I was like, okay, cool, neat. Love this for me. And also <laughs> these machina aren't weak to lightning for some reason. They're weak to other weird elements that I was having to figure out. So I was bringing in, Kimari, who's my only sensor, to try and figure out what the element I needed was, and then switch Lulu back in, and yeah, think, this was this is a little nightmare. I think there were some that had weaknesses to water, and like I still I'm yeah. I still got Brotherhood with Titus, so like I have like inherent water attacks, just my standard attack, so like I didn't uh, I was able to take them out fairly quickly. This was this was the section where I still had Avenger on on Titus, and he's starting to hit like a truck. So mm. I wanted him to keep that because every time a soldier would shoot him, it was like, okay, I get a free kill on that soldier now because yeah. mm. Titus just runs up and smacks him, and that's it. But um, it it really does feel uh, like Jenny was saying that the team is coming together, mm. and more than that, I think this this whole section really recontextualizes the way the party works because once we get Yuna back into this party, it's a different dynamic. And mm-hmm. I think they handle that transition very well. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Via Perifico, uh, the dungeon in this section. But uh, I think they do a really good job of just recontextualizing all of this party's dynamics and their focus and the way they relate to all of each other. Uh, all in the span of what is probably about between home and Bevel, maybe like four hours of gameplay, uh, you know, being generous if you're being speedy through it. But mm-hmm. um, we, as we, as we charge down towards the altar, 
uh, Keenog pulls a gun, which is one of my favorite scenes that I forgot happened. Um, Same. He's got. Like, where did he get this from? He's he's packing under that robe. <laughs> he pulls out, pulls out a shoddy and is like, "Nah, no moving." <laughs> and, uh, Yuna goes for her hail mary play and also pulls a staff out of I don't know where because. She's not wearing like a big flowing gown. She has a pretty, pretty short wedding dress. Yuna, honest, like reminded me of the Guns and Roses uh, November Rain dress a little bit. <laughs> and then the staff just pops up out of nowhere, and she's like, "Time to send Seymour." While everybody's at gunpoint, <laughs> and Seymour uh, is just like, "Oh, your resolve is admirable. I love you even more." It's disgusting. Ew. I hate Seymour. I so they do gross. such a good job of making you hate Seymour <sighs> in this section. Ugh. Oh, we're not even to the worst part yet. I know. Uh, I'm like, and this isn't even over. Oh, yeah. Like, I know. I know. Cringe is a word that is overused in the year 2021 and gone in the year 2021. But I physically cringed at one scene, mm-hmm. and that is coming up very soon. But before we get there, uh, Yuna starts sending, and Ma- Maester Mika tells her to stop, and is like, "No, stop, or I will kill all your guardians." Uh, so Micah, as it turns out, is in on this to what degree we will soon find out, but, uh, they're cool with the whole unsent thing and the wedding continues Mm -hmm. as the guardians are held at gunpoint and, uh, Seymour kisses Yuna in the most uncomfortable scene ever committed to CG. I know. I'm like, they couldn't this had to be in cg oh god yeah it really was the worst like just seymour he's an interesting character but i just dislike him so Mm. much (laughs) yeah and and, uh, granted yuna is gonna have like a really good scene in like a second where she like Mm -hmm. basically responds to what just happened in a way that just solidifies that she's a goddamn queen yeah she she gets mad she's like you know Keenock uh or, or Seymour uh is like, okay, never mind, kill all the guardians. And Keenock's like, okay, cool. This is all for Yevin anyways. And Oren kind of gives him a sly comment of like, though you're using guns forbidden by Yevin to murder us. That's kind mm-hmm. of ironic. Um and then Yuna's like, no, stop, and she's back, way back at the edge of the platform, and she's like threatening to jump. And so if you know she's gone, there goes the whole reason they were doing any of this. Seymour calls him off and Titus tries to, you know, get to Yuna. Uh, but Yuna's like, no, get out of here. Like get away. And then Yuna is like, ugh, ugh, wipes the kiss off. Love <laughs> her. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And followed by an incredible scene where she says, don't worry, I can fly and leaps off. <laughs> and as she's plummeting to the ground in full CG, we get, Veil for summoning in the air to swoop down and save her, and they fly off. Uh, it's, it's it so rules. Good. It's so good. Fucking I like, like I, I goosebumps even just thinking about, it now, about it now. Yes, like I'm like getting choked <laughs> up. It's so good. It's like, ah, <laughs> uh, like even that, that, that line. Like, don't worry, I can fly. Like I'm just like, oh god, I got chills. I just like, mm. so good. Yeah, so iconic. Like, yep. I, I don't know. I I love you know. It's it's such a like. I don't want to say necessarily a trope, but it's such a common thing to like see in anime and games like that big free fall 
mm-hmm. happen. But the way that like this is just so beautiful. And with Yuna, I think what's so interesting to me about Yuna and her arc as a character is she goes from being just sort of having this kind of blind faith in Yevin and like everything that she's been raised to believe in her role in society. And like this is that moment where she goes from having this like more blind faith to sort of under like really kind of internalizing and and for herself choosing the type of summoner and role that she wants mm-hmm. and it's like like the difference between like yeah this faith in Yevin that she's had before and like just true like faith in herself almost mm-hmm. and right. I think it's just so powerful and so beautiful and it's the one of my favorite scenes in the game yeah <sighs> It's 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 incredible. Like it 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 cements this whole idea of Veilfor being like her summon, which we talked about uh, mm. in Home, and the fact that Veilfor is the one that Titus sees and like breaks down in front of is you know obvious imagery and all that. But it's it's just incredible. It's so good, and it's followed up by if that was one of the best Yuna moments, it's followed up by one of my favorite Riku moments, which is she yells, everybody close your eyes and dumps a flashbang on the ground and everybody books it. (laughs) Still my favorite thing is that we've watched the, the best friend, the, the one who tied the whole group together, go plummeting off the side and swoop up into the air on a Phoenix in a show of, of confidence and power and everything. And then Riku's like flash. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we realize that we need to meet up with Yuna and Kamari realizes there's only one place she's going to go. It's the Chamber of the Faith. She's going to continue her pilgrimage. And there is a Chamber of the Faith in Bevel. It was the last stop they needed to go to before they went to Xanarkand. And so mm-hmm. they start to head down towards the Chamber of the Faith. And hey, there's a, there's a lot of Machina in this place, mm-hmm. uh, which Waka's you know, like, what's going on here? This whole place is machines. Like, the stairs move fast, and there's elevators, and there's screens, and weird, like, liquid tubes and stuff like that. And as Oren points out, this is Yevon's true face. This is... They've been saying, you know, as as we tried to point out to Waka in the Moonflow, you know, they get to decide which machina is good, which means they get to hoard all the good machina for themselves if they wish. Mm. So not only have we had guns pulled on us and giant murderous soccer robots try to kick us off the Pavel platform, Mm. but uh, we've also got all these elevators and things that are very clearly like, you know, quality of life things while all the other cities and villages that we've seen, even Luca to some extent, are living with very basic technology and mm. the technology they have is very controlled by Yevon. It's, it's always used in the service of Yevon in some way. And if it's not, it's ramshackled together. Mm. Uh, and yeah. this is a, uh, there you go. True face. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because like they've done like, you know, just looking back before all the episodes we've done before this, they've done up to this point, a pretty good job at like kind of centering Seymour and the Guado as kind of like the sort of uh, the heretics among them that are like doing all these things mm-hmm. that are uh, seemingly against all these teachings. And I think so. I think it's important that they get here to Pavel and realize that this runs far deeper than Seymour because like Seymour mm-hmm. was was you know the person that seemingly instigated a lot of the stuff, but um, you know it was Kinock and Micah that had like held them at gunpoint and like told them not to do the sending. Like they were the ones that were like I guess it was important that we saw the leadership beyond 
Seymour uh, engaging in right. all the things that they tell other people not to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I've been rewatching Cowboy Bebop, the the anime, and like Seymour is definitely a vicious type character where he is he is the new guard. He is trying to take over. He is trying to seize power within the organization, but he wants to seize control of the organization. He doesn't want to destroy the organization because the organization can benefit him in ways. And as we're going to see as this section goes on, this is a character that is very much, you know, he, he wants to get rid of the old guys at the top, but not for any reason for revolution or anything like that. It's just so he can have the power that they have. Um, so he's, I mean, it's, it's the Sith, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's that age old story of the new power wants the old power, uh, rather than try and create any revolution that would spread that power out to more people. Uh, and then we get into the worst section of the goddamn game. Yep. <laughs> the absolute worst. Oh, I, I hate it. <laughs> I am not going to lie. I used a guide here. Yep. I used a guide for the Bevel Cloister trials. I was not going to. I I remember being stuck here. You, you want to talk about being stuck in combat, which happened oh several times in Final Fantasy X. I got stuck in the Cloister of Trials when I was younger, and I was in Bevel for a very. I have visceral memories of watching Titus's face as he goes up that one section that carries him <laughs> up and it just zooms in on his deadpan face as he's riding on this platform and then watching him loop falling off the end of that platform over and over again and then starting back at the beginning and oh it's it's so disorienting no. I tried I tried so hard <laughs> this time around I was like I bet you I'm older and wiser now <laughs> I certainly could get through this without a guide no it's like no. the way that the camera moves the mm. way that it, like you have to press the button at exactly the right, right. time to even go in the direction you want mm-hmm. to go just everything about it is so frustrating and really kind of just kills the vibe yeah <laughs> it, like especially like after it. like this huge like momentum boosting like moment right that was all that before and i think like honestly like, i think the biggest problem is that like like i said like it's timing based it's not just like moving through these like different aisles and like going getting to where you need to go like you have to hit x at the exact right moment when the thing on the platform is pointing in the direction you need to which is like a millisecond window to get it mm-hmm. done and the thing that's, like, interesting about it, I think it has almost distorted people's view of the Cloister of Trials as, like, a, a series of puzzles. Because, like, I was looking back and I was like, you know, they were, they, they felt reasonable before this. And I think this is the one that people remember so, like, strongly that a lot of us kind of think maybe oh, like the Cloister of Trials broadly are, like, shitty puzzles that we don't enjoy or that are, like, really complicated and really complex. But I think it's mainly just this one. Honestly, and yeah, I think it's yeah. honestly like taken over the reality of what the game actually is like. But it's like it like like we like I said, it's like one of the worst sections of the game, if not the worst. And so I think it like well, we talked a lot about how you know the game's twenty years old. Thus, like certain parts of it are more fresh in people's memories. But I think more so than like some of the, what I would consider like bad faith criticism, like criticisms of like the last scene of mm. the the linearity of it all. This one, I was like, no, I think the game deserves to have that that one like, like mark on its report card. I guess like that said that like, no, nah, this was like something that sucked. And 
I think there's cooler ways you can, you know, obviously I think what they're trying to illustrate is that Machina is so uh, core to Yevon that at this stage in the pilgrimage, they're not even hiding things about it. They're just saying like, yep, you're going to, this cloister of trials is just Machina and, and spheres are part of that. And it kind of pulls the, the veil back on that a little bit and kind of recontextualizes some of the previous cloister of trials for you because previous cloister of trials seemed like magic, right? Mm. They seemed like they were, you were doing these things and, Oh, the, the lightning orb stone is floating in the sea of electricity. And I pushed this thing here and it turns the flames off and now I can run through. And it seemed like it was very magical and there is magic in this universe. Mm. Magic does exist, Mm. but in this specific case, I think, it, and I don't know if this is ever codified in the games or not. Maybe it is in Ten Two or some of the extra texts. I don't know, but I feel like this is pulling the curtain back on. No, the Cloister Trials are likely run by Machina. They're likely mm-hmm. pieces of Machina that Yevon has installed at these places and then covered up and made it look like magic. That's my personal take on it, mm. and I think that's in essence cool because now we're seeing it without all the you know fake stone ruined dressing over all of it and now it's just laid bare of oh this is a track on a thing and we're messing around with all the orbs and stuff and it's causing all this technology to interact i think that's conceptually interesting Mm. but it's it's the timing based stuff that sucks it's the pushing spheres into weird places that don't make a lot of obvious (laughs) sense and also, just everything involving the whole riding along the tracks, and I, you know, some of this is probably due to the technical limitations of the time, but the whole going up and down a level and over screens, it's really hard to get a sense of place here. Mm-hmm. It is disorienting, and so uh, I, I think that's maybe my largest problem with it, is that this is the Cloister of Trials where you lose that sense of place that made... You know, I I like the Makalania one because it felt like one big puzzle room. It felt like an escape room. And the same mm. with uh, the Kilika one is is basically just a series of three rooms that you learn to know. They're all just kind of series of rooms. And the fact that this one has the transitions and doesn't feel like this contiguous whole takes away from it a little bit because now it's struggling to give you that sense of mastering space that mm. the other ones did. Um so yeah, cloister trial sucks. <laughs> we we did it because we had to. We got the destruction sphere stuff that we needed to, so we can do a certain side quest later in the game. We have moved on with our lives. Uh, and after we get past that, we get to the chamber of the faith, where Titus is just already like, screw the taboo, get this door open, and Kimari is on board. Kimari's like, yeah, man, screw the taboos. I'm going to lift this door for you because I've been benching. <laughs> and uh, we we run inside and Yuna is praying to a ghost child that looks like the one we see in Xanarkin's flashbacks a lot. Mm-hmm. Puzzling that uh, this is a faith as Oren soon. This My favorite part is that Oren walks in pretty delayed. And so I, I sit there wondering did he then ask Kimari to reopen the door so he could walk in or did he sneak in after Titus or did he just open it himself and walk in after Titus? You know, (laughs) things you think about. (laughs) Um, But he shows up and kind of serves the job of explaining because Yuna is very involved in the praying 
and you know, Oren's got some takes on it uh, because the faith are human souls imprisoned in stones by Yevin Wrights, and we can actually see the sort of stone and outline of what looks like Bahamut uh, in front of Yuna, <laughs> and uh, Oren is just like the dead should be allowed to rest, um, and Yuna receives the faith and acquires the Aeon and then kind of faints and passes out and Titus rushes to her and starts to carry her out. And as we're coming through the door, Riku shouts, you know, don't come out, don't come out here, but we're a little bit too late. The soldiers have found us and Keenock says we are standing trial for, for what we have done. So here we go. Another big story scene. Uh, we lock in the name for Bahamut and then we're taken to the trial where Maester Kelk Ronso shows up. I mean, we have not seen this character very much. I think he's appeared in the background a few times, but never really, yeah, never really. Yeah, never really like, mm-hmm. never really talked. Hey, look, it's a it's a Ronso Maester. That's fun. Um, lays out the charges against Yuna, which include attacking Seymour and conspiring with the Albed. And Yuna turns it on him. Hits him with the Phoenix right. Says <laughs> Seymour. Seymour's the real traitor. He killed his father, Jiskel. And Kelk is like, what's up? What's going on here? I don't like this. And Seymour is just like, yeah, so what? <laughs> like, what are you going to do about it? Um, and she then points out that Seymour is already dead and begs uh, Maester Micah to send him. And then Micah starts laughing. And as he laughs, pyreflies start to appear around him as well. We're now realizing that not only is Seymour unsent, so is Micah. And Kelk and Keenock know because Kelk then joins in and says, the wisdom of Maester Micah is too valuable. It's 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 even more invaluable in death than life. Uh, the line that Ken has so excellently put into our notes here. Mm-hmm. Enlightened rule by the dead is preferable to misguided failures of the living. And so now, you know, we talked about the cycle of death and, and they, they get back into this again. That's that Spira is a land of death. Like everyone dies over and over again. The only ones who see themselves above it are the people perpetuating the cycle. This, this Yevon cycle of cheating their own death while sending so many others, including the summoners to their own death to just keep the people appeased and stay in power. Uh, this, this is the part of the game where you can get really deep into thinking about, wow, Yevon's so messed up that they found this way to not not kill Sin, just stop Sin, just appease Sin in some way. And that gives them power over the people. And then they make themselves immortal in the process and just rule. And this is their kingdom that they have built for themselves. This is what Yevon is. Uh, they own the machina, they own life, they own death, they own everything. Uh, it's super messed up. I don't know, Ken, thoughts? <laughs> uh, like, like I was saying earlier, like, they do a really good job of, just like, in, like, in one section of the game, like, making you understand just how rotten the foundations of this, this world are. Mm-hmm. And because, like, they've been doing a lot, in, like, in the home section where, like, Riku and the Albed are like, this is fucked up, this is not what, like... Just because this is what Yevon says, it doesn't mean this is how it has to be. But even then, like, you know, there's this sort of, like, rebellion to it. And, and more so in the way that it's, like, about... Not necessarily about the structures of this world, but more just about, like, the, the realities that they think are here. Like, they're mm-hmm. like, these shitty things don't necessarily have to be this way. Have we ever considered another solution? And then here it's like, 
the game basically is just like, you know, Fall Face telling you, like, things don't have to be this way. There are very particular, like, people that are making it this way. And, mm-hmm. you know, Wonka's had his various, like, shit about all, like, the more petty grievances, I think. Like, you know, like, oh, somebody's dealing with Wonka now. Somebody's, you know, doing all these small things that we're supposedly not able to do. Where I think, you know, like, she's on trial and, like, has this, you know, this breakdown. It's like, is the entire point of me, like, fighting sin to stop the death that it brings. Mm-hmm. It's this all in vain. Like, is this all just, like, a game to you? I feel like she's the one that's having, like, the more... Almost, like... I, I, I guess, like, her arc is more of, like, the thesis of Final Fantasy X, more than where Watkins uh-huh. is, like, you know, rooted in, like, prejudice and, like, being, like, blind blind in your face to a point of, like, it affects how you, like, how you treat other people where there are characters like Yuna who is having this, sort of, like, this has been, like, the foundation of her entire, like planned out life like she was basically like you know doomed to die for these people's you mm-hmm. know for, for for this belief system for like this system that Yevon has in place and now she's realizing that like all of that was set up by people who didn't really like who didn't care about her to begin with who didn't care about the people that have died in the same roles that she has and it like, like we've been saying like there, there's been points where like characters start to question things but I think that is more that that is the commentary on faith, where this is more the commentary on organized religion and how that is used by people in power, and often used to oppress other people and keep other people in line. And uh, yeah, it's really fucking good. It's a really fucking heavy scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack with mm. this this section in particular. I think, like like you said, this is where Final Fantasy, like they have been saying this you know, throughout the game thus far, but this is where Final Fantasy X really lays the cards on the table and says, Mm -hmm. like, this is an organization that uh, is preying and manipulating on people who have faith and who Mm -hmm. they're taking this, like, what I think is is such a beautiful idea, like the idea of faith in something greater than just like what you can see in front mm-hmm. of you is incredibly beautiful and powerful. And to have an organization that is okay with like, preying on people and just like serving their own like sort of decadence and Mm. and selves um like that's absolutely despicable and i think it goes to the idea of like systems versus people like this entire time we've been focusing on like people like seymour you know Mm -hmm. that or out the albed you know these things these smaller pieces of this larger puzzle where we really should have been you know is Eunice finding out right. the system is really the problem here and there is much more than just Seymour to to address mm-hmm. um I think this also really illustrates the idea of how like like the maesters either and you know this maybe could be different with each maester I don't know I haven't talked to them personally <laughs> but this idea where the maesters either don't believe the religion they propose uh, because it is they I think oh who is it I think Micah says like sin never can truly be defeated no matter Mm -hmm. how many summoners give their lives and it's like if I'm and I might be remembering this incorrectly but from what I remember the whole point was that like summoners someday would be able to find this like eternal calm like there's this mm. this idea of maybe one summoner can be the one that defeats sin and that seems mm. to be a fundamental principle of Yevon right. um and so the fact that they're saying to Yuna's face nope sorry actually this fundamental principle of right. some of someday sin can be defeated is actually not true shows a their total corruption and 
mm-hmm. failed leadership or the fact that like they don't even believe in their own religion, which is a whole different problem. Right. <laughs> That's it, all not good. It also like recontextualizes a major part of Yuna's character now, which is up to this point, you know, as Oren told us when we were walking into Makalania, Yuna is confident. Yuna doesn't want anyone else's help. She doesn't want to be a burden to anyone. And that illustrated that she is kind of viewed her life as forfeit from the second she became a summoner. She knew that mm-hmm. she was going to die at the end of this pilgrimage, but she's wanted to bring joy the whole time basically has seen her sacrifices as, as for the greater good. It's going to bring good to Spira and it's part of something that will give people hope. And now she's realizing that even that sacrifice is just part of a system to keep these old undead men in power Mm. like Mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't functionally do anything other than delay sin for a few years it will never bring eternal calm it will never change anything in yevon yevon will or spira i'm sorry will remain the same after she's gone and sin will come again and someone just like her will take up the staff and make the same fruitless sacrifice and I think that's it, it could be a moment that breaks someone. It could be a moment that just they have not even not even just committed their whole life, but their whole existence to this mm-hmm. idea that they might be able to do something good. And instead they find out that their sacrifice is just part of the way of doing business for mm-hmm. these false prophets. And this does draw the line down between I think we're going to start to have questions of faith versus religion. And what does a person believe versus what does, you know, organized uh, faith tell them to believe and what do they find belief in and what drives them? And, uh, you know, we're soon going to have a very real representation of that in a physical space. But I think for you, know, this is the moment where a lot of her character starts to change and mm-hmm. she becomes a very different person. Uh, still confident, still wanting to, you know, carry a lot of weight on her own and not rely on others, but fighting for something that feels a bit more personal and a bit less detached from her, she starts to, I think, care a little bit more about her own existence. You know, it's, it's as I like to phrase it sometimes, she's allowing herself to take up space in the world. Mm. She's, mm. she doesn't see herself as something that will be eventually disposed of for the greater good. And it's a good it's a good arc for her <laughs> we'll get to that um but the you know it's there's it's a kangaroo one... what's up oh i was gonna say there's one i just i think that's a really really strong point like i don't know why this made this, this click for me but this idea also of like feeling that your own life is disposable um mm-hmm. i i think Mm. Yuna, I really resonate with Yuna. I, she's like one of my favorite characters in all the Final Fantasy mm-hmm. because she goes from doing the right things for the ro- like wrong reasons. Like the idea of just, I just want other people to be happy. Like that people pleasing mm-hmm. sentiment. I unfortunately, that like resonates with me very mm-hmm. strongly too. Yeah. And so this idea of her moving from being this like, lovely kind wonderful person but essentially like this people pleaser to understanding and doing the right things for the right reasons is so powerful um i also what you, i don't know what word you said but something that you said made me realize for the first time which i don't know why it 
this hit me just now, but like all of the maesters, like there's no women maesters mm. that I've noticed. Are there? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've seen, I... we've seen I'm female summoners and we will see women summoners. And right. Shalinda is kind of the representative of Yevon in terms of side characters. But in terms of the actual maesters that we see on screen in this game, uh, it's Keenock, uh, Seymour, uh, Mika, Micah, and uh, Kelk. And yeah. Am I forgetting okay. anyone? No, that's Ken? it. Yeah. I'm trying to think. So yeah, I was also thinking about, because one of, one of the, um, in thinking about just the sort of the, the I don't even want to say, out. So the direct comparison to organized religion is this also like patriarchal hierarchy that mm-hmm. a few yes. organized religions have and so this idea of also Yuna as a young woman coming in and really um, changing this and challenging this mm-hmm. structure I think is especially powerful yeah so these, these dudes yeah. not the bringing thought. these dudes not bringing any new life into the world but instead just killing the life that exists in the world mm-hmm. over and over again mm-hmm. while they persist with their own like yeah, well, fuck these maesters. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know. Just, just like one last thing on that note before we move on, like, and not to jump ahead to, uh, to a game that we're not at yet, but like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, how like Yuna has had to like live in this system that has required her to be completely selfless and like giving of herself to you know for, basically for everybody else around her. Like that's what a lot, a lot of tend to like a lot of the reason that tend to really resonates with me as even because like there are a lot of people that get into that game and think that it's like this really weird totally jarring game that doesn't make sense to them where i look at like her art from this game to that game and like where she's willing to like indulge in selfishness and like be willing to like take a stand for herself and like go after what she wants and you know because she's had this completely like transformative thing happen to her in this game where she's like realizing that like she has not in her entire life really like had that for herself like she's never like this I want to do this for me. I want to go against these forces for myself, not just for everybody around me. And that's why I think that that game is like really essential in in a way to her like her grander arc. And I know a lot of people don't really care for that game because of its like tonal shift in a lot of ways. But it just like they they feel like these really like essential uh, like the, the essential halves of a whole to me. And a lot of that the foundations for that game are very clearly like and non subtly built in this game and. I really appreciate it because I also like you know it's like my favorite Final Fantasy character like all time and <laughs> and I think it, it is because of both games and how they work together even when they seem like seemingly disparate. Yeah, I have to say because I've only played Final Fantasy X two once, mm. um, and, and I really I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember loving it, and mm. so I'm very excited because this has inspired me to as soon as I'm done with mm-hmm. this playthrough of 10 uh, I'm going to be hopping right into 10 too because yeah. I really want to just complete the journey yeah. like you said you'll have to keep us updated on where you're at maybe yeah guest appearance on the next season too <gasps> I would love but, that uh <laughs> that's still a long ways off because... before, but before we get there <laughs> yeah um so our sentence has been decided we, we are sent on down. This is basically a kangaroo court. Like, there's no real actual thing happening here. It was decided before we walked in the room. Uh, Keenock shows up and is like, hey, you know, we're, we're sending you down to the Via Perifico. Uh, and this is maybe the funniest part of the game to me, because I understand why it had to happen for a gameplay reason. But the fact that 
three the three characters who can breathe underwater and swim <laughs> yeah. very well are sent to the water <laughs> prison and the five characters four five i, I miscounted four. didn't i waka oren kimari lulu yuna that's four right the mm-hmm. fifth the fifth is the player <laughs> um the four that cannot you know swim well or breathe underwater are sent to the not water dungeon <laughs> and i know they did that to split the party in an interesting way and they obviously built it up last episode with lulu being like hey there's a water system in Vivel. maybe you should be ready for water battles and all that but uh it was kind of silly going into this being like why didn't they put Orin in mm. the water dungeon why didn't they put <laughs> I know. You, kimari i don't have we ever seen kimari in water i don't know if kimari can swim he's he's a cat dude he's like, a big cat <laughs> he probably yeah, can swim. he just doesn't like to yeah he, he detests swimming <laughs> what got me was i think like titus and waka give each other like this high five when they mm. land down there mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think that's what got me because i'm like oh my gosh <laughs> let's fucking go we've been sentenced to death underwater yeah. like got him <laughs> picturing like waka being dragged over to the water prison be like, oh no oh, not no. water my one weakness no i know i'm like still carrying all his of these maesters just watched like the blitz ball tournament yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they're so we we cut to the maesters having a discussion afterwards they're like wait a minute we just put him down in the secret dungeon that has an escape route. <laughs> what if they escape? And they're like, well, we did not think this one out, guys. This is, we messed up here. Uh, we put the Blitzball star in the water dungeon. <laughs> um, so also a little note here. Uh, as the three macers that are talking, Keenock, uh Mika, Micah, why do I keep wanting to call him Mika? I have no idea why. Uh, Micah, uh, Keenock, and Seymour are talking, uh, and one of them is like, hey, uh, Kelk isn't really into the whole father murder thing, which I think is funny. Like, you know, having an undead pastor at the head of your false religion is a problem, but, you know, father murder is where we're really going to draw the line. <laughs> um and so they're basically kind of like, don't worry, he can be dealt with if necessary. And Seymour uh, is like, hey, you know, Yuna might still be useful alive. You know, we could still use Yuna, you know, Seymour doing his scheming and all that. And uh, Micah is like, nah, she can't live. She caused too many problems. She's got to go. Uh, but, you know, just in case something goes wrong, Seymour, uh, Keenock, y'all y'all go take care of that problem for us y'all go over there um we cut to yuna we're playing as yuna yuna we're playing as yuna i thought this section was longer and i was really disappointed when it was kind of short to be honest. honestly i mean like fun of playing yuna aside i also thought this dungeon section was overly long for what it was so i was like cool I, I'm glad we're playing as Yuna, but also like this little thing of find your party members, activate the teleporter if you want. There's like some treasure around here if you want to find it. Otherwise, go fight somebody. Like it wasn't, I, it was fine. It. I it didn't find Lulu. Yeah, I just found Oren and Kimari. I, I left without her, I guess, but she was there at the end. But like, oh, that's weird. I didn't know I, that you could just like do that. Well, because that was the thing is, I think I like 
accidentally like found like the the critical path and like just went on it really like without really getting lost because I didn't mm. find Lulu and Tamari and Oren were like on that path and so I was like I I guess I maybe maybe it's supposed to be longer and I just accidentally did it very well and like just got through real quick. I, the, the only reason it would be longer is if you're picking up all the treasure in this area, which mm -hmm. I did. And there's like some decent treasure in here, like and some a white magic sphere, which I'm going to use to teach Lulu holy later and stuff like that. And is it, that's all really handy. But uh, at this point, like a lot of it is a little unnecessary. And it's I guess it's really only there if you want to have the moments of Yuna meeting up with a party member and then them being like reacting to what has happened. Cause even the scenes you get when you meet up with Kimari and Oren and Lulu are not like involved. They're mm -hmm. just kind of like, Oh, Hey, cool. You're in here too. Let's go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then we head over to Isaru. I, mm -hmm. I'm still not sure on how Isaru got here to be honest with you because he was on the airship. And so did he grind down the ropes too? Did I he like, he, he even says like they dropped him off. They they just dropped them off. Yeah, they were okay. headed to Bavel anyway. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, I guess they were doing their pilgrimage anyways. But uh, yeah, so Isaru's here, and Kinok has ordered him to deal with the traitors. So Isaru's like, "Let's have a summoner battle. Let's go." Um, and and we we kick his ass. This this is sad. Isaru does not show up. <laughs> <He's> no. <laughs> Uh, I, I did think, so before, I, I, let, let's talk about the d dunking on Isaru first. Uh, his Bahamut <laughs> is lame. <laughs> it's yeah. the worst. The whole countdown over the top of his head is lame. Uh, like, the most dangerous part of this fight is the Ifrit at the beginning, because he grand summons it. Mm. And so he's got the overdrive right away. Mm -hmm. And so he can, like nuke whatever aeon you put out first i put out bahamut uh with a grand summon so i also got off in overdrive as well and and we traded back and forth uh and yeah i don't know it's i thought the first two summons in this battle were really cool and it was like okay i i have to fight this summoner and i've lost all the previous summoner battles so i don't mm. know if i i think if you go into this having lost all the fights with uh, Belgamine up to this, it's exciting because now you're like really being put to the test. It's have you learned from your mm. mistakes? Have you mm. become a greater summoner? Uh, and you have to fight someone who is supposedly on Eunice level. Like right. this is this is a in theory, in ostensibly. Theory. And instead, he summons his Bahamut, which also because it's a summon battle, you can't have the same Aeon out as the other person does so ken i can see that you summoned bahamut <laughs> later <laughs> which looked like it was a problem <laughs> well so i when when he first did if I, I put out shiva because like oh that'd be you know fine but i didn't realize it was gonna be a grand summon like or it like didn't occur to me at that point so she mm. got fucking wasted um mm. and then i switched it back to bahamut which was i think kind of the intended thing to do because like bahamut mm -hmm. can kind of blast through all of these things until he does right. bahamut and then I, I actually managed to have Ixion uh, already with like a full overdrive when I sent him out, and because his whole strategy with Bahamut is I'm gonna just like all, all he does is count down to his overdrive. He doesn't actually do anything to really wear you down. It's just a matter of like you know guarding at the right time and then healing yourself with 
whatever elemental magic applies to whatever Aeon you're using. So right. it wasn't, it was fine. It, like, it was I think unremarkable. it was cooler than it was mechanically. I don't know, yeah. what did you think, Jenny, mm-hmm. of the Summoner Showdown? I, I agree with that. I think conceptually it's, like, a really cool thing because, like you said, it's the opportunity for Yuna to, like, after going through all of these sort of worldview shattering things, going through a journey thus far and training to be a summoner, like this is this is the summoner battle to like really escape and get out and sort of start this new leg of the journey. Um, but yeah, I was just kind of like, eh, the battle itself was just fine. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I chose Bahamut first, so I I mm-hmm. didn't have too much trouble with it. So. Yeah. Yeah, Bahamut took out the first two pretty handily for me. Mm-hmm. And then I actually I think I Bahamut dropped on Veil for who's the second summon that he uses of the three. Mm-hmm. And then I brought in Ixion to close that out. And then when he summoned Bahamut, I brought in Shiva because Shiva moves super fast. Mm-hmm. Uh so you could get in so many attacks before uh that countdown ever got near finishing. And I think I I didn't even use overdrive. I think I just hit him repeatedly until he died and just guarded and healed when I needed to. And that was that it, it feels rewarding because I think knowing that you can heal yourself with the right element of magic and knowing to guard and all that, it, it is an acknowledgement of Yuna becoming a smarter summoner and, and, mm-hmm. and knowing more than just summon thing, go hit enemy, whatever, but understanding, you know, the complexities of being a summoner and using summons to their full capability. But yeah, I had all, I, I prepped for this one. I was running around in the dungeon, just building up uh, overdrive mm-hmm. on all my aeons and all that. And I'm maybe mm-hmm. used three of them. So it was nice for this next section, but it was not right. useful at all in this part. <laughs> uh and then we beat Isaru up, and and he's like, "Damn, that's it for me. My my career's <laughs> over." <laughs> and, uh, and Orin is literally like, "Your pilgrimage is done." <laughs> I was like, "Cold, man." <laughs> yeah, like literally, while kick him while he's down. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is sad though, because like he idolized Braska and like just got fucking whipped by his daughter, and you're kind of like shamed, I guess, in the whole process because like people are gonna know that he failed and. Like, who is going to let the summoner that failed to stop the fucking heathens that have mm-hmm. uh, done, like, these awful things to Yevon? Who is going to let that person be, you know, the summoner that, that defeats sin and it, like, goes down in glory like that? Who knows? Maybe we'll find out more about Isaru and, and what happens to him in the future. Who can say? Who could say? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we pan over to the underwater group. Uh, this is a pretty tough section i feel combat wise because at this point my underwater crew i mean they're they're doing a lot of damage but they're not the toughest group and they don't have like like elemental stuff what riku or not riku uh what lulu was saying on the airship is suddenly coming together a lot because i was like oh i really wish i had some like lightning touch weapons or something Mm -hmm. right now because it is taking me a while to work through some of these enemies. So honestly, I just started fleeing all the basic battles in mm-hmm. this area uh, mm-hmm. because they were just taking too long and I was having to use up tons of resources to keep the team alive. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'm good. I want to keep some of these Albed potions. They're handy. So I'm just going to start fleeing uh, using Titus's ability to do so. And yeah. we, we go forward and suddenly 
zombie is zombie Evray Evray Altana is here. They apparently are not just limited to making the maesters of Yevon undead, but also why not bring the dragon back too? <laughs> and so the dragon's back for round two. And in one of the most well-known uh, things that Final Fantasy X fans can share amongst each other, uh, I just hit this dude with two Phoenix downs and he was out. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd, I didn't think to use Phoenix Downs. I used an X potion and an elixir, like actual, like really valuable oh, no. things oh. I can't buy. Because like, I mean, they do like nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine damage, but like I, so I didn't realize Phoenix it. Phoenix Downs. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, shit. Okay. You live, you learn. Yep. Noted for when, the next time I play this game in like ten years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine all three of us use that strategy, right? Mm-hmm. No one. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Once, once you know this, you never fight this boss the normal way again. And it feels like such a reward to know it because then you get to just swim out of the dungeon mm-hmm. and there's no more <laughs> random encounters after the boss because that whole area after the boss is supposed to be allocated for if you flee through the gates and fight around the boss and all that. And instead it's just like, no, congratulations, you solved the puzzle by reading the zombie effect on the enemy and making a smart decision like being like oh hey what if i did this and finding out it works and being like okay cool it teaches you a mechanic in a very mm-hmm. interesting way that will come up again later that right. will get used against you later which is also very smart and i love <laughs> yeah but it's it's cool that the game kind of rewards you for being attentive while also teaching you a thing it's going to use against you later mm-hmm. like just smart smart design in this right. game Unless in, in, in ways that aren't going to be as uh, like silly as this this can be, because like it's going to actually use it in ways where like you can't necessarily just have this fucking immediate out if you throw a potion at something, and it it's going to make you have to like reckon with that system in a right. in more complex ways. It's you know zombie status is kind of a go to in Final Fantasy particularly like it's one that you will see come up in a lot of Final Fantasy games and Final Fantasy adjacent games. I was playing Dungeon Encounters recently, and there's like a zombified effect in there as well. Uh, and it's it's cool when they think of stuff like that and come up with things like that mm. uh, that, that make you kind of have to think about the systems that you're working with. Uh, so we escape. Everyone's here. Everyone's together. Uh, everyone's, you know, cheering and happy. Yuna's alive. Titus feels awkward. You know, he kind of had a lot of emotional moments. He's going through it right now. And Suddenly Seymour shows up dragging the dead body of Keenock behind him. <laughs> and uh, oh. here's Seymour. Here's He's like, don't worry, you know, Keenock, I saved him. He, he just wanted power. He was always scheming. So I, I saved him from that by killing him. So he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> and you're like, oh, crap. Seymour's uh, kind of lost it a little bit. Mm. Um if you know whatever marbles he had before now they are all out of the bag and Mm -hmm. uh seymour starts monologuing about his plan and death is an escape and spira is a spiral of death get it spira spiral (laughs) um and that's why he wants yuna to come with him so he can become sin and he will destroy Spira to save it. And Kimari's like, okay, I'm done with this dude. <laughs> and uh, runs forward to stab him and then realizes that like, oh, right. Can't stab ghosts. <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, and then Seymour kind of brushes the staff aside 
and then absorbs all of his guards and turns into this freaky monster. And Kimari's like, okay, I got this. I'm going to hold them all off. Everybody run. And Oren's like, cool, yeah, good. I'm, I'm good. I don't want to fight this. <laughs> this is a good plan. And books it. Uh, but then Titus and Yuna, halfway across the bridge, are like, wait, no. We're not leaving Kimari behind. Uh, we can't do this. And I like that it really reframes this idea of, mm. you know, Kimari in the past would have been, a, like, this would have been his job as Guardian, is to die for Yuna, essentially. And Yuna is now like, I don't want people dying for me. This is my friend. I'm not going to leave them behind. Mm. It's a cool thing. Even though Titus like re-references the fact that they're guardians and all that, uh, I like that for Yuna, this is a case of not, you know, just like in Makalania, not letting the guardians do all the fighting, not letting the guardians right. uh, potentially die for her. She wants to fight with them. She wants to stand with them. Uh it's very good. And then they all turn around and, and go mm -hmm. back and it's, Oh, it's wonderful. And we fight across a giant bridge for full of those, uh, asshole kicking bots. <laughs> and, uh, they're, back. they're back in full force. <laughs> at least they put two save spheres in this section, yes. like one oh, at one gosh, end of the bridge yeah. and one at the other, which is just the kindest thing that any designer on that team has done. Yeah. <laughs> I know. There's a moment where, like, you know, because they're all like, let's go, and they run, and each of them has their moment, and, you know, Lulu's like, I'll go too, and, mm -hmm. and I see the save spur in the background, and I'm like, please, in all that is, with all that is good in the world, please let us stop and save before we start yeah. what I know is going to be a tough battle. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of it, it kind of feels like they they put that section there just so you could grind if you were having trouble with Seymour. Mm -hmm. Yes, which, because you know, this boss, I, oof. Yeah, because like I'm I'm, just, I'm noticing that more like they have like even if it like gets weird in terms of like the story ramifications of just like walking back and forth on this fucking bridge, like they're at least putting these things in place for people who might have gone through like a long stretch of, of story section but might not be totally prepared for the boss at the end of it. To have like a section where they can grind if they need to, and they can like find resources and constantly be saving and not have to deal with any sort of uh, ramifications on that front. Um, I might like I might have needed it at this point because well, granted, when we get to the actual fight, I'll explain why the grinding actually would not have done me any good. But let's get to the fight first. Yeah, so I'll say I I grinded a bit here because I knew going into this fight that I, I I knew that one of the spells there are two spells you want to have going into this fight. One of them is Bio, which is Lulu's probably first non-elemental spell. Uh, like it, it's not fire or water or anything. It's it's one that casts poison on an enemy. Mm. Uh, and that's a very good spell that will serve me well for many boss fights to come. And uh. Also, Yuna having Reflect helps a lot mm -hmm. with the final phase of this fight that's coming mm -hmm. up. So I knew that those were the two things I wanted to have going in. So luckily, because I had all my Aeons in Overdrive already, uh, I went through a couple battles where I would just have Yuna summon an Overdrive right away and it would kill off the entire... Like I, I got the achievement for doing 9,999 damage to a bunch of enemies all at once. Mm. Or, or no, it, it might have even been the breaking one, like breaking that limit. Um, I forget if you can do that with Aeons or not. Uh, but 
yeah, I got that achievement on this bridge, just overdriving these enemies over and over again. And I think I needed like eight levels, eight movement spots on the sphere grid. And once I got there, uh, that's when I initiated the fight because we are fighting. Uh, oh, what is the name of this? Is it Seymour Natus? Is this one's mm. name? Seymour Natus? Let's uh, find out. Yeah, yeah. Do me, do me a favor and Google that form name real quick while I describe <laughs> this boss. Uh, so Seymour's big and ugly and gray and got like this weird bug monster hanging out on yeah, his shoulder. Yeah, Natus, Natus. Seymour, Seymour Natus, I think. Um, we're just gonna we're gonna call him Seymour, but wanted to get that right because he has cool form names as he possibly appears again later in this video <laughs> game. Let's just say. Um, <laughs> So this is, it's an interesting fight because say if your name is Kenneth Shepard and you have not spent a waking moment of this game using Kimari <laughs> in any battle, uh, you are forced to have Kimari in your party at the start of this battle, mm-hmm. which I, I personally think makes sense because Kimari is, is you know, present and fighting Seaborn and all that and then having Yuna and Titus join him because they would theoretically be leading the pack back towards the fight that all makes sense to me uh but it clearly was a frustration for ken because uh you had what was essentially a level one minion out against a level 100 boss here <laughs> and he kept fucking dying before i could switch him out like that was that was that was thing the frustrating was like the actual fight was about as challenging as it probably needed to be to be like you know fine mm-hmm. but getting that fucker out of the fucking field was like <laughs> A constant pain in the ass, because, like, Seymour would go for him first every time. He knew. He knew I was trying to get him off the <laughs> he field. Knew. And <laughs> he, like, he kept dying. Like, it never actually got to be Kamari's turn. So, like, I would spend time and resources trying to revive him and, like, trying to protect him in some way. And in retrospect, now that I'm thinking about it, I sw- should have switched to Auron and used the, def- the defendability that he has or something like that. Because that would have been, like, a way to tank mm-hmm. through Seymour's attacks mm-hmm. and get Kamari out, out of there. Because, like, all of, like, the actual useful characters cannot take that spot until he is gone. Right. And it was especially, I mean, I get why he is, one, like, one of the starting party, but Auron is one of the characters that has, like, an actual a speaking line. Because he can talk about how um, Keenock was, like, his friend. Like, he wasn't who he used to be, but he was still his friend, so Seymour will pay for his death. And, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, raises some of his, like, I think it's his attack stats. But fucking Kamari just was vibing. Just, like... <laughs> <laughs> has 14 unused sphere grid points that I haven't used because I don't want to waste my spheres on him. You gotta and use like, them. Come on. Well, that's the thing. Is like we're, we're heading to a point in the next episode where I'm probably... like It's going to behoove me to have him at a higher level, like just like with more abilities and more strength mm-hmm. that would be useful. So I guess I would, all the time I'm going to spend grinding in the calm lands, I will dedicate some time to him. But he was a pain in my ass for this fight. Do you know the trick for getting experience for every party member on a boss that you got to have them all attack the boss in some way to get mm-hmm. experience? Oh, yeah. Okay. Just like yeah. one hit and yeah. then you rotate them back out. Yeah. One hit and yeah. you get all the credit. Yep. Yeah. I mean, look. <laughs> it's like Riku, a group project. Yeah. <laughs> Riku and Kamari both got their hit in that they needed to get. I even made sure because I was like, I don't want to swap Riku in for a quick heal or whatever and then swap her back out and not have her get any levels. So I made sure that she got an attack round in as well. Yeah. Um, I think I had her overdrive at one point, so I used that to deal some 
more damage to Seymour that way. I still have not touched that overdrive yet, and I think I'm going to hang on to it for a while because I'm saving it for some specific boss fights that we will mm. get to later, mm. uh, especially once I have acquired a bunch of a certain item for getting all of the Albin primers in this game, and I can cheese through some bosses really easily with, with the overdrive mix I can use from those items. Um, but that's sort of the thing I love about this boss is that it's a mechanically complex boss, so it starts out and uh, the main, so the, the bug body will cast a single spell and mm -hmm. then Seymour will follow it up on his turn with multiple casts of the same element. So it's playing off the, the sphere monster that we fought earlier where it was kind of telegraphing what you needed to respond to. Seymour did the same thing in his fight in Makalania where he would rotate through spells and you would have to anticipate what those spells would be. So now we've got both that interplay back, that aspect of Seymour's fight back, that's you know kind of a callback, but also, like we were talking about earlier, it's rewarding you for paying attention to turn order because if you can slide unit in there, the bug will dispel. Like the, I, I think it's the bug, maybe it's Seymour, but they have an ability that's basically like dispels everyone, all the buffs on the other team. Uh, but it will only fire if the entire your entire party has the same buff on them at the same time. So you can't haste everyone or Seymour will wipe it all off the board. But you can haste a couple party members mm -hmm. and work around. So I had, I think it was Titus, Yuna, and like Orin or Waka was hasted. And I would be swapping them in and out strategically to use their abilities while also making sure that I didn't ever get that buff wiped away. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you could use Null to get a free turn you know you'd have it wiped away eventually but you would get a free turn of nullified stuff or actually no wait it wouldn't get wiped away because if you timed it right seymour would proc the null and then not every character would have null on them so mm. it's mm. it's a cool interplay it's these mechanics are coming to the forefront and that's just phase number one once you move into phase number two now you're now you're dealing with protect spells now you're dealing with um this is when I, the bio came in real handy because if you cast it on him at the beginning of the fight, he is not like weak, but he is one of the few bosses that you can poison and who will take poison damage over time. And that adds up <laughs> over turn, over turn, over turn as it keeps ticking away on him. Uh, and then finally uh, you get to the last section and his Morta body, his bugs will start healing him every turn they have come up. So if you have Reflect, you can cast Reflect on Seymour and every cure will rebound off of him and onto your party because you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're getting healed while you're beating the last life out of him. And it's granted, yes, these are all like, you have to go <laughs> trawling through game facts and, and game guides and stuff to find this stuff. But it feels so rewarding to do that even if, you know, I had this perfect game plan laid out and managed to completely min max this thing to get everybody gets a hit nobody falls down uh we're gonna do every phase correctly and run it efficiently it it is that sense that i was talking about of the cloister trials earlier of owning the space you have mm. dominated the boss battle you have complete control of the situation it's that feeling you get when you're playing like a good run in a roguelite and 
all of a sudden you're not fighting for survival anymore. You've just become boss of the dungeon. Mm. <laughs> and this was, I think that fits really well thematically for these characters. Cause now they're not being driven by this predetermined destiny that Yevon has laid out for them anymore. They're not being driven by what they've always been told in their lives. They are gaining mastery over themselves. They're gaining mastery over their own destinies, their own futures, and they're determining it for themselves and they will fight anyone who gets in their way. And now you are feeling like you've gained this mastery over the system when you beat Seymour Nottis. Um, I love this mm. fight. If you can't tell, I loved it. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great fight. And like the mechanics of it are, are really fun. And like you said, rewarding once you get a sense of it. I think what's really cool too is like Seymour, it was Nottis. I, I, mm. I never Nottis, remember the actual Natus. names. Natus, Nottis. Natus. Um, <laughs> but. It, like the design of him is really, really interesting. And I think mm-hmm. this goes back to the idea of, um, so uh, I think someone mentioned it in a couple episodes ago earlier, um, but the idea of also not just like, we talk a lot about Western religion and organization when we talk about this game, but there's a lot of like Buddhism that's mm-hmm. brought into this mm-hmm. game as well. And this t- design of Seymour Nadas is really interesting because it brings to mind like, like, to, at least for me, like Shiva, which is this, which is actually Hindu. It's not Buddhism, I don't believe. Um, and this idea of the god of destruction, tying in that idea of like Seymour's plan of just ending suffering by mm. ending everything, which I think is also really cool and speaks to some of the like sort of different um, like. Southeast Asian and East Asian influences mm-hmm. that you don't often see in games. And so mm-hmm. I found that really interesting. And Seymour as a character, at this point, when he does sort of just go off on his own <laughs> idea yeah. of like, ah, this is how I'm going to save Spira by destroying it all. I think this is where he gets a little bit more interesting for me because mm-hmm. of of the way that he is choosing to save Spira and how that contrasts with Yuna and with, with the Macers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, he is saying that, like, you know, I mean, they even said, like, at, at the trial, like, you know, death is the inevitability of all of this, and if, you know, the system keeps something in place, then maybe it's all worth it, where Yuna is like, no, there must be a way to, like, you know, preserve all of this, this doesn't all have to happen, and he, like, exists in this, like, like, this extremist, like, side of what Yevon says, is, like, death is inevitable, but, like, that death is also the end of this cycle, like, in a way, and... Mm-hmm. It isn't, because, like, when I, when I first hear him, like, go on his, like, you know, his spiel, I, I hear that, and I'm like, that just sounds like you, like, I had originally read that scene as, like, him, because, like, they talk about when people die, they turn into fiends in this world, and if they're not sent, and that was me just, like, reading a lot of that initially, like, him kind of just, like, going off the deep end, because he was, he was dead in this universe, but that has, like, a connotation of, like, slowly, like, turning into something distorted and evil, and, because, like, it seems almost nonsensical at the, when he says it, but, like, when you actually, like you were saying, like, sit down and actually think about, like, what are, the, like, the solutions and inevitabilities of this world that people are posturing, or, like, you know, the, these possible futures that, like, Yuna and her friends, like, envision, um, mm-hmm. it actually kind of falls into place on that spectrum somewhere, which is mm-hmm. interesting now to think about, and, like, as, to keep in mind as we move forward with the, because, you know, we're going to fight him and he's going to turn some fireflies, but we will, we will see him again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we don't send him after the fight. And part of me does wonder if that's like, 
an oversight that they, you know, oh, you could have sent Seymour then after you defeated him, but you just didn't. But I also think it's like a shift in Yuna's thinking because previously like sending him would have been a mercy, right? Mm. It would have been in line with the teachings of Yevon that you were supposed to send somebody when they die. But Yuna's just seeing that this is all a lie. This mm. is all fake. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I almost sit there and wonder if, you know, she's just like, whatever, forget about it. Like that plan's done, you know, whatever, and whatever good she thought she was doing, maybe there was, there was even a part of her that thought, oh, you know, maybe Seymour's soul can still be saved. Um, That's all gone now. That's, that's done. That's in the bin. There's no point. Um, And it's not worth saving. It's better Mm -hmm. to just beat the crap out of him and his creepy buck. Uh, (laughs) And we'll get more times to do that in the future, possibly. Um, but we beat up Seymour and escape, you know, the one thing that master Micah and all the maesters were, were like, wait a minute, this could totally happen. Uh, oops. <laughs> so <laughs> they run out, uh, they run out of Bavel and we end up back in Makalania woods, uh, who, where Oren is like, Hey, uh, probably should never go back to Bavel again. It's probably a bad idea that we go back there. So that's the game's way of saying like, Hey, you're not, going back to that place you know you're you're done there which i hope you picked up the all bed primer that was there (laughs) (laughs) um because otherwise yeah you're you're playing this game again uh so yuna goes off says she wants some time alone and just about everyone especially lulu is like that means go talk to her (laughs) titus go talk to her and so after navigating what is the most hellish frame window in the world of trying to use use the save sphere in this area <laughs> that is perfectly placed between Waka and Oren. Uh, and I must have talked to Waka and heard his dialogue so many times in the section trying to use that freaking save sphere. Uh, we find Yuna floating in a lake, and I'm going to let Ken take this away for our redux of one of the most favorite scenes in all of Final Fantasy X history. Yeah, because we talked about it initially, but I think in context, it has there's more layers that we can discuss in it. It's you know it's one of the most like important scenes in the whole game. So like it has there there's a lot to unpack that we could do a second time. Because uh, we do we we find Kamari and he points off to a lake that you're floating in and she kind of like they have like a, this moment where they're just kind of like talking about like what they thought this was going, like this was all going to be and that obviously like with the knowledge that they both had heading off into the pilgrimage they both were imagining different things. You thought this was going to be easy that everyone would just, like, simply open their doors to them as they made their way through Spira, and she would just be able to complete all of this with her friends beside her. And then Jesus is kind of like, well, you know, maybe you've been trying too hard, considering this is, like, the old, the end goal of this is, will be your death. And then this is when she kind of realizes, like, so you know now. And mm. he apologizes for all the things that he said about going to Xanarkin and beating Sin, and how they would go back to all these places and see them again. And she says, that, like, those things didn't make her sad. Like, you know she enjoyed like having this positive energy and like it made her it it made her happy and she like even considered those thoughts um they start like swimming and like floating around the lake and they Tina like brings up the idea of like after all of this what if you just didn't keep going what if you didn't finish your pilgrimage and then she starts to like think about like what does that look like um she says that like she would, wouldn't everybody surprise be surprised about that um and then Tita says Riku would be like totally on board because like she's been trying to get you to stop since she got here. Lulu and Waka would probably wouldn't hold on for too long, and 
Kamari would, you know, do whatever you wanted, but she felt like she would probably owe Oren the explanation, and which, like, Tita even offered at some point to, like, talk to him instead, so she didn't have to, but she's like, no, he should hear that from me. Um, then there's a point where Yuna starts to, like, talk about her life. If she's not somewhere, like, what is she going to do if that's not, like, her fate? Then Tita talks about going to, like, going to Xanarkin, like, his Xanarkin, as opposed to the one that supposedly exists in Sphera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they talk about, like, all these, all these, like, you know, these pie-in-the-sky fantasies, like, going, like, flying there on the airship, and him playing, like, a blitzball game, and, like, she could watch the, the Xanarkin apes play. Um, and then they would just, like, you know, hit the town. They'd see Xanarkin in its prime. Um, and as he starts to, like, describe it, all, all these things to her, like, she starts, like, she says that she would like to, she would like to see that, and he says that they can, they can both go, and then she starts crying and says that she can't go. Um, the funny, funny thing that happened, and Eric, I guess you haven't got this, but, like, this, this scene is blocked on the PS4 and PS5 recording, and that, <laughs> that fucking, like, big, you know, uh, notification came up, and it was, like, totally took me out for a second. Um, but then, yeah, we get, the, you know, this really iconic scene of them kissing in the lake, and then, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's still, like, an incredibly, like, it, it's a stunning scene. Like, it's beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like I described in my notes, like, it's dreamlike. And even after everything we said about it before, like, I think in context, I, the, the scene really feels like it encapsulates their relationship because it's them talking about, like, all these things that they imagine for the future, but, like, them feeling like this inevitability, like, pull them back to reality or, like, what, what they believe at this point to be reality. And them both just, like, struggling in that, like, limbo between, like, the, the future they want and the future that they have been told is the only thing that's possible. And so, like, if, if they can't figure out what that, fa- like, that future, that, that fantasy that they've been having looks like and what their future is going to be, they can at least have this moment. And so, yeah, really good fucking scene. It's beautiful. Like, so I love, I love, K-dramas, Korean dramas, mm. Um, mm-hmm. partially because in Korean dramas, there's this, like, usually there's, like, a 16 to 20-ish episode arc, and, like, you spend the vast majority of the season of the series waiting for this, like, moment where they fi- where the two protagonists in the K-drama finally, like, kiss and, like, have this mm. moment where their relationship is realized. And I think this, what I love about Final Fantasy X is it, it really follows that structure where we've been playing this game for so many hours at this point, And we know and we've seen this relationship growing in these wonderfully, like charming and very real ways and to have this moment where they are finally able to talk like alone and you can see that like Titus you know he's still he's still goofy he's still awkward not you know the most the most emotionally intelligent person in Mm. the world but you can see his growth in this conversation and Yuna as well they both have this like really grounded just knowledge that they bring finally to sort of one another as they talk and it's like really, it's kind of heartbreaking because, mm-hmm. you know, they're talking in the lake and you can see it, it's like that moment where they're trying to almost console each other. Be like, yeah, we can watch the Xanarchy Names and I'll show you the lights of my city. And they both know that that's mm. very unlikely to happen. But mm-hmm. the fact that they're like even verbalizing that and like, yeah, just like 
sort of consoling one another with it. I, I find just like, mm-hmm. oh, it just like tugs at my heartstrings. Yep. Um, and, and just like everything about the scene, like you said, is dreamlike and beautiful. And yeah, I get choked up every time I watch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even, even when replaying it earlier this week, I was just like, how is this so beautiful still yeah. mm-hmm. so many years later? And so true because you've been waiting for them to have this moment together this entire time. Right. Um, yeah, it's really beautifully realized. Yeah, I think and it, it's still like it, it, we talked about this a few times. It's like I'm always amazed at like how the game still looks as good as it does. Like it, oh, it's, yeah. even yeah. if like you know the actual like fidelity of it is not necessarily up to like it's certainly not up to snuff with what they've been putting out with like Final Fantasy 15 7 remake and things like that. The art direction it just like holds it up like on it on its shoulders because mm-hmm. like it's just this beautiful like and you know it's in Makalani Woods, which is the like most beautiful area of this game or none mm-hmm. and yeah just like 20 years later it's still beautiful to look at and it's uh, two points that i want to like point out here is like number one before the kiss scene even happens they're having the conversation and Yuna says something about how easy she thought it was all mm-hmm. going to be and how this is so much harder than she had pictured you know and it's mm-hmm. hearkening back to what i was talking about earlier like this idea that she had pre-planned her going away she mm-hmm. she was ready to accept it she, she had made her peace with it she was going to do something for the greater good it was going to mean the end of her but she was going to go away on her own terms uh doing some good for the world with her friends by her side mm-hmm. and she had made her peace with that and now it's it's so much more difficult because now that end that she had perfectly planned is gone mm-hmm. it's it doesn't exist anymore and uh even if she continues on her pilgrimage and on her journey to, you know, sacrifice herself for Spira, she knows that it's not the same. It's, it's mm-hmm. not the same tone anymore. And she's going to have to wrestle with the idea of a lot of people that had made their peace with it up to this point, you know, her, her friends and, you know, honestly family that had made, uh, their peace with it and we're accepting of it are now going to have probably different thoughts about Yuna continuing the pilgrimage mm. and she has to reckon with a lot. And I, I think that then segues into my second point, which is they're, they're swimming in this water talking about all their futures, all their potential. And there's such a hollow bitterness, like bittersweetness mm-hmm. to it because like, like y'all were saying, it's something they know can't happen. Like up to, we, we've talked about Yuna a lot at this point, right? We know that Yuna's entire future that she had planned for herself is now gone and up in the air. And this is the only path she knows. And now she has to contend with the idea of making a sacrifice that she knows will be hollow. If only to afford just 10 years of peace for people who are living in a broken system, that's going to take advantage of them. And that's a lot to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on the flip side though, Titus is not only going through the same thing where this, this girl he obviously cares a lot about is going through all that. He had to go through the whole situation of if, if that happens, he's not going back to Xanarkins. Uh, and he's going to have to potentially live in a world without Yuna. And this is, you know, we're going to contend with even more of this as it goes on. But I think, you know, like we talked about earlier, there's some level of Titus that had accepted that he was going to live in Spira and he was going to make a life here and he was going to establish it. And now that has been completely shattered. They, they are both without future right now and they're trying and grasping at what they can do. And so I think the moment when they finally embrace and, and kiss in this, 
scene there's there's like a, a zoom in like an intimacy to it where it feels mm. like the world outside like you don't see the surrounding you know there's just kind of trees there's not like a sense of uh place in the world you don't have landmarks that are tying you anywhere you don't have this broad setting that's letting you know like here's where they are like they're just in this pocket this pocket mm-hmm. universe that is for them in this moment and they're going to have this moment together because they don't know if they're going to get another moment together. And uh, it's, it, it's frankly, like it, it's kind of sweet. And, you know, I talked about it was bitter before. It's sweet in that this is the thing they can't control. This is the thing that they can take mm-hmm. some level of ownership over in their life. And after they come out of the lake and uh, also like Kamari was hanging around. Mm. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as Ken alluded to, I stopped my playthrough before the kiss scene. Cause for some reason I thought we were playing up to that point. And so I, I have obviously seen this scene many, many, many times before, but I'd not play it for this specific week of playing, but I'm now seeing in the notes that Kamari was hanging around and <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> nah, that's the long and short of it. I don't know what to tell yeah. you. Kamari's just being like, okay, everything's on, on, on the level here. Okay. Just, we're all good. You know, I'm just making sure we're all good here. Hmm. Um, and then, uh, but we, after that happens, they, they share this really sweet moment of them, you know, Yuna's like, stay with me until the end, please. And, and Tia's response, mm-hmm. not until the end, always like always. <sighs> Which, oh, Titus, for all the times you have flubbed the romantic moments in this game, like, look good at you. Job. You're <laughs> look all grown you. up now. <laughs> when, when it counts, he, he really oh, loves it. We love, we love to see it. We love to mm. see it happen. Uh, but so initially, you know, they're they're like, okay, let's head back separately. Don't want anyone talking. And then, oh, Titus hears the whistle, and Yuna catches up, <laughs> and they go back holding hands, and. That's, I love that part because I think it then reinforces this idea that they have decided that they have control over some things in their lives. This is something that Mm -hmm. they want. This is something that they want with each other. And for as long as they have time left, you know, walking this mortal coil, they're going to at least seize what they can. And that's, it's sweet. It's, it's beautiful. The scene Mm -hmm. is so good. It's, I think so many games flub romance, mm. honestly. Like we've, I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast before. We're as good as some of the romances are in Bioware games. They can also sometimes feel like, you know, an achievement pops up at the end where it's like, mm. good job. You did the thing. hundred gamer points for <laughs> finishing a romance. <laughs> and one of the things I've always loved about Final Fantasy 10 is that it feels like it earns it's it's romantic moments it feels like it earns mm. this relationship between these characters and then it lets you see that develop like y- you mm-hmm. don't just get up to you know in, in other games this kiss would have been one of the last scenes in the game right. or, or an epilogue and even in some of my favorite games i've played recently like tales of arise this those scenes end up being epilogues and stuff mm. and and it's mm-hmm. cool that we get to see this evolve as part of the game because it's part of these characters stories and their stories ain't done yet. We still got more stories to go after this. So, mm-hmm. um, one thing that I really, wonderful. Oh, sorry. I was just oh, saying it was, it was good. It's good. You go ahead. Um, one thing that I really also love about this moment, cause again, just as someone who's just a Yuna Stan, I love, mm-hmm. I love Yuna. Um, 
what I appreciate a lot about this part is that, you know, throughout the game up until around this point, while she's super kind to everyone and obviously everyone absolutely loves her, there is this detachment because she knows her own role and, you know, you don't see her really, really connecting with people. Mm. Um, And Mm -hmm. at the lake, you finally see her like, letting her guard down um, Mm -hmm. and and like allowing herself to really connect with someone. And you can see this later as as you progress. I think after this, her relationship with the rest of the guardians also feels like she's able to be a bit more vulnerable, a little bit, a little bit messier, a little bit more honest um, Mm. and like really accept help, which up until this point, she's been, you know, she is the savior. She is the person who's going to bring the calm back, you know? And I think finally understanding that this is, this is not her sole burden to bear right. anymore to a mm-hmm. certain extent is something that happens as a result of all of this, this realization um, that we've just gone through with her. And maybe, you know, if she is the summoner and she has to go on this pilgrimage, she can still ask for help and lean on her guardians mm-hmm. in ways that she hasn't done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she doesn't feel, well, I mean, she, there's the inevitability of like what they think their end goal is. But, like she no longer feels like right. she has to be caught in, the way, like all the ways she thought she had to go about this, like there are things mm-hmm. that she can be open to, and I think you know we've seen that started, like it started to build, you know, with Tita's because he is like this weird wild card that's been thrown into like her pilgrimage in a way that, like you see them slowly starting to open up to each other and talk to each other in ways that are clearly different than everybody else, and so now that like she's had like all of these like you know the one two punch of realization that everything that she knew was alive, also to like this relationship has been solidified in a way she has opened herself up to if not necessarily a new end goal or new possibility at least like the journey there can be different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we get one last scene here when we get back to camp riku looks at titus well expectantly like hey what's up and he shakes his head which is i think the communication there is that yuna still wants to do the pilgrimage which she later assures everyone of that they're leaving at dawn and she apologizes for putting everyone through it. And that's kind of where we leave off as we're heading off into some might say an uncertain future um, where we know that there is an end goal and we know what that end goal is. And we've even seen that end goal. It's called Xanarkins. It's, it's mm-hmm. looming in the distance. Like this, the one thing that I, I, I want to shout out before we wrap this podcast is I, I still love the opening of this game because it puts this scene in your mind. And when stories do this really well, they do it really, really well. The, that, that image of them in Xanarkins uh, means nothing to a player who has just booted up the game for the first time. Right. But it means everything to somebody who's playing it for the second time. And it's something that continues to just play in your mind as you play through this game for the first time. And you learn more details about all these characters you learn why they seem so downtrodden. You see why that brush of Yuna's shoulder as Titus walks by is so important in the way he looks out over Xanarkin and kind of monologues for a moment before going into the game. And it's just always looming in the distance. It is the quote unquote end of the journey and it's still there. It's still hanging overhead and we're going to start heading off on our way there, I guess. So to wrap thoughts on this, Ken, what what did you kind of feel about this whole Bavel section now that we've gotten all the way through it? Mm-hmm. Like, is this is this tops for you? Is this Final Fantasy X? Yeah, it was one of the 
like undeniable best moments of the like best sections of the whole game and like like we said at the very beginning like it just kind of embodies all its best parts and like I think we even said at one point that like you and I both have like the beginnings of this game kind of like memorized we didn't have memory cards when we first played mm-hmm. on the PS2 and like yeah. we had to replay those sections a lot but I feel like <laughs> even as a section that I have not played as many times a lot of it it is still one of the points of the game that sticks to me sticks out to me the most and like is mm-hmm. the most vivid in my memory and I mean it's just it's it's full of like the some of the most memorable moments in this game and even saying all that I'm like there are still moments like that left to come and that oh, is yeah. very exciting to me Jenny how about you oh my goodness I mean it's I've been thank you first of all for providing me a reason to just like <laughs> jump back into the game and like play it you know, like I'm going to be finishing it. I've been trying to follow along and play sort of along with the podcast, which has been really fun. Um, it's amazing to me how human this game feels and mm-hmm. how just like re- like grounded it feels, even amidst sort of this like fantastical world of Spira, you know, and you have the a- uh, the the faith and the aeons and everything happening. Um, I think this section in particular does just sort of, ground everything in this like really basic like the human relationships um Mm -hmm. and this idea of like finding love and friendship and camaraderie despite just the absolute corrupt systems and the horrors that they're having to deal with and i think that's what i love most about this section Mm -hmm. it's it's truly incredible and and we've got even more to go like ken said but I just want to shout out. Thank you so much, Jenny, for coming on. We're so happy to have you on here and guest. And clearly, oh, if you're you. going to be working forward to two, we got to find a way to get you on for some 10-2 as well. Because I would I would really love that. <laughs> it would be phenomenal. Before we go, shout out anything you want to shout out. Socials, wherever people can find your work, whatever you do, shout it all out. Um, I guess people can find me on, I'm on Twitter very, very frequently, um, at kimchika25. Um, it's the place where I talk most about my work on like Spirit Swap. Um, I also help with the Wholesome Games organization as the host and I help curate. So, um, if folks are interested in that stuff, Twitter is the best way to find me. And I also stream, uh, and create content very regularly now. So, uh, if you want to watch streams of indie games and, honestly probably some final fantasy um <laughs> tune in at twitch.tv slash kimchika uh, and those are probably the best ways to find me and i guess i'm working on spirit swap lo-fi beats to match three too so if you'd like to check that out and wishlist it uh it's a really really wonderful game awesome thank you so much again for for joining on you're a fantastic guest and and i'm glad we got you on to talk some final fantasy yeah thank you both i again i had a blast uh, it's been really fun, just like I said, going on this adventure uh, also with the other guests. Because, again, I've been listening to the podcast and it's been so neat and exciting, kind of like a book club to just yeah. play along and hear the discussions. And it's great. We've, we've had that discussion recently, Ken and I have, that uh, the more we hear from folks who who have stuck around through our many, many uh, seasons and stuff, uh, they, they like the book club aspect. So we do try to to treat it that way like it's you know a little i think audio let's play was something that we said the Mm. other week but it's you know we we try to have it be a little cozy thing everybody gets to check in and we're glad that you played along as well that's fun uh as always we are 
Normandy FM, aka patreon.com slash Normandy FM, where you can go back us there and help us keep the lights on for two all those hosting things and buying kind of hard drive to back all these podcasts up on and things <laughs> oh, like that. It's been a while that. since I've done that. I need to update the hard drive. Yeah. This, this was my passive way of saying like, Oh, we should probably do that again. Cause I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, when was the last time we backed up all these episodes? So probably Dragon wanna... Age. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a minute. It's been a while. Uh, if you want to help us with all that, you can go back us at patreon.com slash Normandy FM. Any level will get you into the backer discord where we put all our updates out. We hang out in there as well. People like to post memes and stuff and, and chat about the games that we're playing. So if you want to hang out in there, you can go back us at patreon.com slash Normandy FM. If you back at the next highest level, you get these episodes as soon as Ken is done editing them rather than the regular rollout that we have of every two weeks. And at the highest level, you get your name shouted out every week on the podcast. And this week, that list is just the Wedge of Destiny, Mercedes Cluis, Mir Randomly, and Micah Mante. Thank you so much for backing. Thank you for helping us do all the things that we do. As we previously said, Jenny was our guest, so go check out all of her socials and for Ken, for Jenny, for myself, for all of us. Thank you so much. We will see you as we climb Mount Gagazette and deal with some brother problems next episode on Normandy FM. Oh, 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 oh